Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Previously on Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. You're listening to episode 36 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. In this episode, we're talking about Skinwalker Ranch. There were several different types of aircraft that they saw. They thought it was an RV at first. So it had a kind of rectangular refrigerator-like structure with lights on the front and the back. And they thought it was an RV that someone had driven onto their property. They thought somebody was trespassing because they were seeing it at ground level. And so Sherman said, okay, we're going to tell these people to get off our property. They started going towards it and it would leap over fences. And they realized this is not an RV. And eventually it's eventually it sails off up into the sky. This is similar to a reported kind of craft from Brazil. Um, a number of years ago, there were sightings of what the locals would call chupas in Brazil that were basically this kind of box-like, refrigerator-like, RV-like craft with lights. And they had some encounters with humans that were studied by the famous French ufologist Jacques Vallée. And these were fatal encounters. People died as a result of encounters with chupas. So we may talk about them in a future episode. You're listening to episode 74 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about the Brazilian Chupa UFOs. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. In 1977, strange lights and objects began to appear in the skies over Calares, Brazil. The locals were terrified as strange light rays from these objects struck and injured them, as well as others in Brazil. Some people even died making these fatal UFO encounters. The Brazilian government launched an investigation into what was happening at Calares. And that's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. So, Jimmy, this is a patron's episode, but a special one. Yeah. Normally, we ask the patrons to choose among a, a particular group of topics and we do whatever one they select. But for patrons who pledge $75 a month or $75 or more a month, we let them pick the topic of a single episode by themselves. And so one of our generous patrons, Dr. Hiram G., pledges $75 or more a month. And so he chose the topic for this month's episode. It's on the Colares UFO encounters in Brazil. Great. And folks, if you if you uh, have the means and you'd like to choose an episode for Jimmy to research for you, please consider raising your pledge and, and doing that. So, yeah. Jimmy, Jimmy, I understand you have a disclaimer that you'd like to make at the beginning. What is that? So growing up, I my school system required us to take some kind of foreign language and Spanish was available in my local school. So I took Spanish, but Portuguese was not available. And so even though I've had a chance to study Portuguese pronunciation a little bit, since Portuguese is the native language of Brazil, we're going to be encountering some Portuguese names, but there may be some Spanish pronunciation overlay on my part. So I apologize in advance for that. <laughs> okay. Uh, and the, particularly the word that I was, hopefully I said that right at the beginning, uh, Shupa. 
Yeah, in in Spanish it would be chupa, but in Portuguese it's chupa, and it means sucker. So you've probably heard in, of chupacabras, goat suckers. The right. you know per, unusual crypto cryptid life form, maybe. And so these uh, UFOs were called. It's the same word, but just different pronunciation. They were called chupas, or sometimes chupa chupas, because the locals thought that these UFOs were draining either blood or vitality out of them, and they left wounds on the bodies of the people who encountered them. Wow. Uh, I assume that Chupacabra is on the list of future possible topics. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> of course. So uh, also, Jacques Vallée is going to be important for our story. Who is he and why is he important? He's a ufologist from France, and he's considered one of the more thoughtful and responsible ufologists. You know, there are a lot of kind of self-proclaimed UFO experts who really are not very careful. But Jacques Vallée is considered to be a very careful and thoughtful one. He's the model for the character Claude Lacombe, the French ufologist in the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind. That character is based on him. Early on, Valet was an advocate of the extraterrestrial hypothesis that UFOs are from other planets. But these days, he advocates what's known as the interdimensional hypothesis. He thinks UFO encounters are real, and they're caused by interaction with intelligences from another dimension. Note that this syncs with our Skinwalker episode ranch. If, and that's a big if, uh, something paranormal is happening at Skinwalker Ranch, the evidence would support an interdimensional connection. And that's going to come up in this episode, too. Valet is important to our story in this case because he's one of the most respected ufologists who has investigated and written about the Colares UFO incidents. He wrote a book. Uh, called Confrontations, A Scientist's Search for Alien Contact, which is one of the major published resources on these incidents in English. So where is Brazil? It's a city in the northeastern part of Brazil in the state of Pará. It's in the delta of the Amazon River, just a few miles from the Atlantic coast. It's almost exactly on the equator. It's less than one degree south of the equator, so it's really hot there. Its name in Portuguese apparently means necklaces. Its population as of 2006 was a little more than 12,000, though back in the 1970s, it's reported to have had only around 2,000 inhabitants. In the 1970s, at least, it did not have an airport. And to get there by air, your plane would land in a churchyard and then race down a narrow lane with bushes that would smack the wings of the plane as it slowed down. Exciting. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) The location where the encounters occurred is also described in many resources as being on Colares Island. But I checked on Google Maps and I couldn't find a Colares Island. So I'm not sure about the relationship between the city and a local island. It may be that some of the encounters occurred on an island that contains part of or is otherwise near the city of Colares. So then when did these encounters start? They were part of a broader wave of UFO sightings in Brazil that took place in the 1970s. There already had been encounters elsewhere in Brazil before the ones in Colares. But according to Bob Pratt's book, UFO Danger Zone. Sightings and encounters in Colares began in July 1977, were particularly heavy in the last four months of the year and continued sporadically through November 1978. UFOs were reportedly seen in 30 communities with Colares, Mosquero Island, and Baia del Sol 
seemingly getting the brunt of the visits. So the sightings in Colares were basically from July 1977 to November 1978, just over a year, close to a year and a half. The objects in the sky that were reported were seen by many people, and according to Jacques Vallée, Every evening the UFOs appeared coming from the north. In some cases they flew down from the sky, in others they emerged out of the ocean. I saw a photograph of an object with a luminous white ring flying right out of the brackish water at dusk. They came over the islands at low altitude and circled. They descended as if to land. They made loops and accelerated suddenly. They hovered over houses and probed the inside with beams. They even emerged out of larger objects and re-entered them. And this happened on schedule every evening for three months. The objects were never alone. On numerous photographs taken by journalists, they are seen accompanied by smaller probes. They exhibit a variety of shapes that would drive an aeronautical engineer to insanity. They range in size from star-like objects to things as big as two 737s end-to-end. The larger objects were more frequently frequent than the smaller ones, and they hovered in the sky, apparently secure in the belief that out there in the mist and the mud at the mouth of the Amazon, nobody would ever bother them. Perhaps they knew that the Brazilian Air Force had issued confidential orders directing air traffic away from the area. There was nothing elusive about these objects. They were not the fleeting phenomena so often described in the American literature or the dreamlike manifestations experienced by the contactees, which become even more streamlike under hypnotic regression. There was a superior technology at work over Colares, and all the observers could do was to film it and watch in awe. In UFO Danger Zone, Bob Pratt recounts how he spoke with people who saw the UFOs. People said they'd seen UFOs going into and out of the Amazon River near Colares. Some had also seen glowing blue objects moving about under the surface of the water. They were frightened and felt threatened by them. Rosil Arana de Oliveira, 36, who owned a store on the beach at Calares, told me, I often go fishing at night, and I get out to this spot, and we can see these lighted things coming at great speed, and when they get close, they just stop. Sometimes they go into the water, and sometimes they don't. Pratt also spoke with Marcelo do Nascimento, who ran the local electric plant. Many times we would see UFOs very high, and they'd be shining red beams of light down on the houses. It was like an airplane light pointed to the ground, like a streak of reddish light. Many people saw the UFOs, and the beams of red light would go inside the house and circle around as if they were searching for something. But these beams of light would hurt people. Uh, Here's what a local woman named Claudia Mira said of her encounter. I was sleeping in a hammock in the house of a friend with five or six children when a beam of light burned me, she said. It was 11 o'clock at night in September 1978 when it happened. The Air Force people were here studying the cases. I saw very clearly a bright light outside, very strong, and the air became warmer and warmer. The first time the light shined through the window, it was green. It touched my head and passed across my face. I woke up and the color changed to red, like when you put your hand in front of a flashlight. I could see a person, but only from their chest up. I think it was a man, but he had on what was like a diving suit. I saw the face of the man, and his eyes were very small. He had an instrument like a pistol. He pointed the weapon at me and shined the beam three times, hitting me in the chest all three times, almost in the same place. It was very hot. I think each time he took blood. The burns left three little pinpoint scars in a triangle on the upper right side of her chest. Bob Pratt explains, She tried to explain what the scars looked like, then tried to pull the top of her blouse down to show us, 
but the blouse wouldn't go down far enough. Finally, with a shrug, she simply lifted her blouse and showed us three tiny marks in a triangular pattern just above her right breast. It was hot and it hurt, she said. It was like being stuck with a needle. I bled at all three points. At the moment it happened, I got very thirsty. I was terrified, but I couldn't move my legs. I was paralyzed. I was very frightened, and I screamed and screamed. My cousin, Maria Asete, was sleeping in the same room. She woke up and saw the light, and she screamed too. The man and the light disappeared, and a few minutes later, Maria helped Claudia Mira get to the Calarius Hospital, where she was treated for her burns. She stayed until four o'clock in the morning and then went back home. For many weeks, I had headaches and fever, she said. We should note that Claudio Mira's experience was different than those of many others in one respect. They didn't see a humanoid with a gun. They just saw beams of light that struck them coming directly from the Shupas. Uh, however, the effects that they reported the beam of light having were the same as the ones that Claudio Mira reported. Were there any doctors in Colares who examined them? Uh, yeah, the local physician was a woman named Dr. Valaidi Sesim Carvalho, and at first she thought that the reports were due to drunkenness or hallucinations or mass hysteria, perhaps but caused by local rumors of sorcery. But as the number of patients came to her, sta started rising, and she saw the physical results of the lights, she changed her opinion. Uh, here's part of a 1993 interview she gave. Did you believe these people who had been burned when they came to you and told you what happened? Not at first, I didn't believe them. When did you start believing? At first, I thought they were crazy, but after the fifth, about the fifth case, I began to take it seriously. For a long time, the sheriff, the priest, and I were the only professionals in Colares. When the UFOs came to Colares, many people left. Only three professionals remained there. No stores were open. We had little to eat except eggs and farina, that is cassava flour. The fishermen wouldn't fish because they were afraid. The number of people she treated was quite impressive. Here's another part of the same interview. How many people did you treat for injuries connected to the sightings in Calares in 1977? Approximately 40 people, mostly adults. What kind of injuries were they? Mostly burns on the chest, like sunburns near the face, the throat, and chest. Most of the people were like that? Yes, the burns usually covered an area of 10 to 20 centimeters. Almost as big as a soccer ball? Yes, the skin peeled off. These burns healed quickly. Usually it takes about 72 hours for burned skin to peel. UFO burns begin to peel almost immediately. Peeled off and healed quickly? Yes, very interesting cases. I could see two small puncture wounds in the center of these burns. In all of these cases? Yes, in all. All had irritation, swelling, redness. Very red. Almost always in the chest and throat and face. Yes. A ray of light hit them. Yes. This is what people told you? Yes. I know of two deaths. Two deaths. Yes, a man and a woman. The woman was taken to Belém. Eight hours later, after I treated her for burns, she died here in Belém of a heart attack, and that morning she had a large burn on her chest. Another factor that changed Dr. Carvalho's opinion was that she ended up seeing a UFO herself. You saw a UFO yourself? Yes, I saw a UFO in November 1977. It was a cylindrical thing, about six o'clock in the evening. My secretary was with me. She fainted. What did you think about the UFO? I think the UFOs come from another place in the universe. It is stupid to think we're the only ones in the universe. What colors did you see on the UFO? Metallic, silver. Part of it was a lighter color. How close was it? 
about 40 meters, that is around 130 feet. For how many minutes? A few minutes, I don't know how long because I was fascinated by it. More than 10 minutes. It was very beautiful. Several other people saw this? Yes, everybody else was afraid and they ran home. I was the only one who stayed on the street. Everyone yelled for me to run, but I stayed. This was near the beach. About 200 meters. People were shouting at me to run, but I didn't. I was too fascinated. One time, a UFO flew very low. It was going to land. People shot at it and threw stones to drive it away, but an Air Force team arrived at that moment and shouted, No, 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 don't do that. But people were very frightened. Many people said they could see people in the UFOs like me with blonde hair, long blonde hair. Many people said this. They said I was like the extraterrestrials. I was the only woman there with blonde hair. The UFO I saw circled and made rings in the sky. It was beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. The Air Force knows about this case, but the Air Force told people not to talk about these cases. There are a number of things to unpack in Dr. Carvalho's statements, but let's start with the medical effects on the people who the light rays hit. Was she able to find a common pattern of symptoms? Yeah, according to Jacques Vallée, the symptoms were... A feeling of weakness, some could hardly walk. Dizziness and headaches. Local losses of sensitivity. Numbness and trembling. Pallid complexion. Low arterial pressure. Anemia with low hemoglobin levels. Blackened skin where the light had hit, with several red-purple circles, hot and painful, one inch to one and a quarter inches in diameter. Two puncture marks inside the red circles resembling mosquito bites, hard to the touch. Hair in the blackened area fell out and did not rejuvenate, as if follicles had been destroyed. No nausea or diarrhea. I find the last item, no nausea or diarrhea, interesting because other people in Brazil who reported attacks by UFOs did complain of nausea and diarrhea. It's interesting to note that the injuries only occurred on places like people's necks and chests. Uh, this suggests either that the light beams were targeting those areas or that people's clothing blocked the effects of the beams if they struck other parts of the body. How likely is it that the UFOs were actually sucking blood from people? Well, even if we take these accounts as being factual, it's hard to say. Uh, Dr. Carvalho reported that her patient suffered from anemia or low hemoglobin levels. However, this, while this could be due to literal blood loss, it's hard to imagine that it was blood loss if there were only these tiny small punctures in their bodies. But it could be due uh, to injuries caused it could be due to injuries that caused a general loss of vitality and that harmed the body's ability to make new blood, as suggested by some of the things we'll consider. Dr. Cavallo mentioned that she knew of two people who died. What happened to them? One of them was a fisherman who died around October of 1977. He was about 32 years old, and he had a burn on his chest from the UFO. He died at home within 24 hours of being wounded, about two hours after Dr. Carvalho spoke with him. We have more detail, though, about the woman who died. She was a domestic worker, about 40 to 44 to 45 years old, and she died in September of 1977, about a month before again within 24 hours of the incident. According to Jacques Vallée, One day, Dr. Calvallo found a woman waiting for her when she arrived at the dispensary at 7.30 a.m. The woman was very agitated, and she said that she had been hit by a shupa. Opening her blouse, she revealed extreme reddening of the skin on her left breast. Again, there were two puncture marks. I tried to calm her down, related Dr. Calvallo when she was interviewed in 1985. 
I told her was nothing serious, that she should not let it impress her. I gave her five milligrams of diazepam, that is, the tranquilizer Valium. She could barely raise a glass of water to her lips. She complained that she had trouble breathing. She suffered from dizziness and felt weak. I later found that these were characteristic symptoms, along with headaches, and a decrease in the number of red blood cells. Three hours later, I was urgently called to her house. I found her in a state of deep coma, the body totally rigid, gasping for breath. She had no fever, and she did not vomit. I tried to take her to the nearby city of Belém in my car, but I did not have enough fuel, so she was driven there in the car of the prefecture. I waited for news. Hours later, I received a medical statement and a death certificate from the Renata Chavez Medical Legal Institute giving heart failure as the cause of death. And because the cause of death was listed as due to heart failure, there's some doubt about whether the effects of the light beam were the primary cause of death. Uh, Dr. Carvalho seems to think that it was a heart attack caused by the trauma of her experience and other injuries. And were this woman and the fishermen the only people who died? These two were the only people among Dr. Carvalho's patients who died, at least immediately. Uh, however, several other people in Brazil also died shortly after their encounters uh, during this overall wave of UFOs, and some suffered from ill health for a year or more and then died. In fact, some of the some reports that they had a loss of vitality that lasted for several years after the encounters. The deaths that occurred later on, though, could be natural causes, but their families saw their deaths as being the result of the ill health caused by the UFO encounters. How did the locals react to the Shupas? They were terrified. To defend themselves, the local would try to scare the Shupas away. They would light fires, bang on pots, shoot off fireworks, and even shoot guns at the Shupas. As Dr. Carvalho mentioned, lots of people fled the area. She, the priest, and the sheriff were the only professionals who remained. The shops closed and the fishermen wouldn't go out to fish, so they had trouble getting food. And how did the government react to all this? The Brazilian Air Force decided to do an investigation. Uh, this began in August or September of 1977 and lasted for three months. It stopped once the number of incidents had passed its peak and began to taper off. The investigation was known as Operação Prato, uh, that's Operation Plate, or in other words, Operation Saucer. It was headed by a man with the impressive name, Captain Urangue Bolivar Soares Noguera de Holanda Lima, who is often referred to just as Holanda for short. He later helped UFO investigators look into the case. Jacques Vallée describes Operação Prato. A team from the Brazilian Air Force had arrived on the island early in October, a few weeks after the events had started. They came in two vehicles, two officers and a dozen men, engineers, geologists, and a biologist. They were between 30 and 40 years of age and came from the south. They erected two shelters and asked the witnesses to keep quiet about what they had seen. At night, they set up telescopes and cameras to photograph the Shupas. The fact that they asked the locals to keep quiet about the encounters was significant, and people took it very seriously. Between 1964 and 1985, Brazil was under a military dictatorship, and people were very cautious about what they said and did. According to Bob Pratt, Dr. Cavallo said she began keeping a record of the people she treated, but later destroyed her notes. Brazil was then under a military government, and she got worried about official reaction to the record-keeping. 
Dr. Carvalho also said that the Air Force didn't allow autopsies of her patients who died. What did Operation Saucer find as a result of its investigation? It's hard to say. They apparently wrote an extensive report, but this was classified until the 1990s. Uh, Wikipedia's page on Operation Prato says that the military took photos of unusual lights in the night sky over Colares, and that's confirmed by multiple other sources. But it also says that the military experts ultimately concluded that there were no unusual phenomena there. That's according to Wikipedia's page. According to the uh, new Brazilian government, the Opera Sao Prato report has been declassified and is available online at the Brazilian Arquivo Nacional or National Archives webpage. But it's in Portuguese, and I haven't been able to find a complete English translation, which is rather frustrating. Also, there is a question of whether the report has been fully released or whether this is a sanitized version. Captain, later Major Holanda, uh, himself also admitted seeing a UFO during the investigation. When Holanda helped Bob Pratt interview Claudio Mira, the woman we mentioned earlier who was burned but not killed during her encounter, Holanda said the following. We had equipment to photograph the UFOs and we were on the beach. We saw this thing crossing the sky at about 7.30 in the evening. It was in the low clouds, shining intermittently at one-second intervals, blinking. Everybody in Kalari saw it. I was talking to Claudia Mira when it crossed again at the same height, about 300 meters, that is about 1,000 feet high. It was just like a barrel. I saw this shape after we processed the film, but during the sighting, all we saw was the light. Unfortunately, Holanda didn't live too long, according to Wikipedia's Opera Sao Prato page. In 1997, two decades after the operation, Captain Holanda gave an interview to ufologist Adamar Jose Giverd and Marco Antonio Petit, where he rec recounted his experiences living alongside his men. Three months after the interview, he was found dead in his home, quote, after he seemingly hung himself using the belt of his bathrobe, end quote attracting the interest of conspiracy theorists. So, nothing suspicious about that. Nope. Uh, Captain Holanda didn't kill himself. Yeah. <laughs> According to recent memes. All right, yes. so uh, that is that is the the background of this. So what theories are there about the 1970 1977 Colares UFO incidents? They fall into two classes, the more conventional theories and then exotic theories. Uh, conventional theories include hysteria, hoax, disease, and specifically malaria, weather, ball lightning, including ball lightning strikes on people, and classified technology. Then there are the more exotic theories, demons, because, because it's always, always demons. demons, extraterrestrials, because it's, it's always, always aliens, aliens. <laughs> crypto-terrestrials, and interdimensionals. Howdy folks, this is Jimmy Aiken with a special message. The StarQuest Network is fulfilling its mission to explore the intersection of faith and pop culture. And in the past year, we've reached stunning new heights. Our programs are reaching broad new audiences with a message that helps us discern good entertainment, make sense of the world, and share the gospel with others. The support of our audience is vital for this work and has helped us grow closer to meeting our financial obligations. For that, 
we're very grateful. But we still need to close the gap. Every new gift extends our deadline. But until we eliminate our deficits, the future of StarQuest and your favorite shows remain in question. That's why it's crucial that we hear from you this Advent and Christmas, the time when nonprofits receive most of their support for the year. If you're already a supporter of StarQuest, we're very grateful, and we ask you to prayerfully consider increasing your support at this time. If you're not yet a supporter, please become one now. We urgently need your help, and every gift counts. Could you give $15 or even just $10 a month? That lets us provide more than 40 hours of professionally produced shows with compelling content. We have special thank you gifts for donors at several giving levels. If you're a business owner or just want to provide a leadership level of support, we now have a special giving level for sponsors, like in public broadcasting. For $500 a month, you or your business can sponsor one of the shows on our network, including Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. Listeners will hear a message in every episode thanking you for your sponsorship and giving your website. We'll also have your name and website on the SQPN webpage and in the show notes of every episode during your sponsorship. Whatever level of support you can offer, whether large or small, please show your support for StarQuest this Christmas. And remember that your gifts are tax deductible. Just go to sqpn.com give. That's sqpn.com give. And may God bless you and yours as we approach the celebration of our Lord's birth. All right, uh, let's start with the faith perspective. What can we say about the Colares UFO sightings from the faith perspective? We covered the theological implications of what it would mean if intelligent alien life exists back in episode 55. So you can go listen to that for a discussion of that subject. Other than that, the only other idea really that comes in from the faith perspective is what about the possibility that this could be demons harming people? Well, we don't have any positive indications that it was demons. Uh, demons don't usually leave physical wounds like this. And they're not primarily interested in harming people physically. They're primarily interested in harming people's spiritual lives. But in this case, the UFOs didn't show up and preach false doctrines or encourage people to engage in sin. So unless you have demons as your go-to explanation for anything unusual, we don't have strong reason to think demons in this case. So then from the recent perspective, what can we say about the Kalari's UFO encounters? Well, let's start with the hysteria hypothesis. The problem here is that simple group hysteria would not produce the wounds on people's bodies that individuals, including the local doctor, reported seeing. Such wounds would count as physical evidence that something beyond a purely mental phenomenon was involved. If those were, wounds were produced by humans at all, they would have had to be self-inflicted. Okay, then what's the possibility of a hoax? It's possible that people could have inflicted wounds on themselves as part of a hoax. It's even possible that some people went too far and inflicted fatal injuries on themselves. But it seems very unlikely that multiple people would be willing to injure themselves for a UFO hoax. This is especially the case since there doesn't seem to be a good reason for them to do so. It's not like Colares became a Roswell-like UFO mecca where 
you know, they would make tourist dollars and create a local industry. In fact, you know, the reports are that many people fled the area and the local economy was harmed. Uh, The fishing industry shut down for a time and the doctors spoke about how hard it was to get food for months. But you could say, well, what if what if there are no wounds? What if the reports of wounds were part of the hoax? Well, in that case, the doctor would have to be in on the hoax because she said, I saw these things. So would reporters like Bob Pratt, who claimed to see the wounds later on, like when the woman showed you know, the wounds just above her breast. And if wounds are reported in the Brazilian Air Force report, if we can find someone who speaks Portuguese and would like to read it and tell us whether they're in there, then the Brazilian Air Force would also have to be in on the hoax as well if they said we saw wounds. Now, you could even, just exploring the hoax hypothesis here, you could take a super skeptical approach and say, how do we know any of this happened at all? I mean, you could entertain the possibility that nobody in Brazil even reported these things and that the whole series of encounters was made up by foreign UFO investigators to sell books. But the Brazilian Air Force report contradicts that. It's real, and it has been declassified, and the Air Force wouldn't have investigated if people weren't reporting these encounters back in 1977 when the investigation occurred. So we have evidence that there were widespread reports of UFO activity in Colares, in 1977. So this isn't just something that foreign people have made up. I don't know what the motive would have been for a widespread hoax on the part of the Brazilians at the time, but it strikes me as one of the best theories if you want to say that absolutely nothing unusual happened here. Hoax is probably one of two fallback positions you could reasonably maintain. Maybe hoax coupled with mass hysteria. Then what about the idea that it was a disease like malaria? Well, this was one of the first things I thought of because, you know, some of the wounds were described as looking like insect bites and they raised welts. And so malaria would explain some of the symptoms that Dr. Carvalho observed in her patients. Uh, Malaria produces things like weakness, headaches, trembling and hemolytic anemia. But she didn't observe other malarial symptoms like nausea, vomiting, and cold flashes. Also, she was a trained doctor who should be able to recognize malaria, which was a major health issue in Brazil. In the 1940s, there were 6 million cases of malaria in Brazil every year. And there are still hundreds of thousands of cases every year, even today. So she should know what malaria looks like. Fundamentally, malaria doesn't cause the kinds of wounds with the blackened skin and the hair loss that were reported. And it wouldn't explain why the symptoms developed immediately after UFO encounters. Malaria victims typically become symptomatic one to three weeks after infection. And it tends not to be a light beam from a UFO that causes the infection to suddenly manifest. Right. So then what about the idea that ball lightning was responsible? Ball lightning could explain some of the things that the Kalara citizens saw in the sky, some of the lights. The details of ball lightning don't match exactly, but if we allow for misperception and misremembering and miscommunication, the reports do have a number of points in common with ball lightning. 
Uh, ball lightning, you know, looks like a ball, uh, like some of the lights apparently did. It moves unpredictably. It can endure for some time over a minute and, you know, subjective what the heck is that can make a minute seem like longer than a minute. It can appear inside buildings, which happened in some of these cases. It can appear in different colors, including red. It can throw off flame-like projections, you know, light beams, and it can hurt or even kill people. On the other hand, ball lightning is incredibly rare, which is why scientists don't understand what causes it. It is unlikely that ball lightning would manifest in this one area of Brazil or for a period of over a year, just in 1977 and 1978. If there were some natural factor producing frequent ball lightning in Colares, we would expect it to have operated more consistently, not just during this one period. And ball lightning wouldn't explain the observations of physical craft like the big metallic cylinder that Dr. Carvalho reported hovering 130 feet up in the air for several minutes. What about the idea that it was some kind of classified technology? This theory is possible. In fact, it's one of the theories that the locals in Colares proposed. Since the craft were observed coming in from the north every evening, they thought they might be a classified American program because America is to the north. And the U.S. intelligence community has experimented on people without their consent, like we talked about back in Episode 71 on the death of CIA scientist Frank Olson. But there are also problems for this theory. One is that we don't seem to have had directed energy weapons capable of the effects like the locals in Colares reported, at least back in 1977. We have some directed energy weapons now with more on the drawing board, but I'm not aware of anything that was undergoing operational testing 40 years ago. Also, you have to ask, how likely is it that we would be testing them on the population of Colares, Brazil? Uh, you could argue that it's because it's a remote area and the people there aren't Americans. But Brazil was a strong ally during this period of the Cold War. The Minister of Foreign Relations at the time was quoted as saying, what's good for the United States is good for Brazil. So would you really risk alienating an ally and risk the spread of communism in the Western Hemisphere by doing weapons tests on its population? And even more fundamentally, what would be the point of the tests? I mean, when we invent a new gun, we don't have to test it on live human beings to know, know whether it works. I mean, we could learn what we need just by testing it on animals and on corpses. So why would you take this military technology to another country when you could just shine your ray beams on goats and pigs and corpses and find out what effects it has. It, you know, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. So while it's not impossible, there are challenges for the classified technology theory. All right. So let's move into the exotic possibilities. What about those? Well, if you don't like the conventional theories, then that does point us to an exotic theory of some kind. The trick is distinguishing among them because we'd be dealing with an advanced non-conventional technology that we know little or nothing about. I think the least likely of the exotic theories is the crypto-terrestrial one. That basically, for people who may not be familiar with the term, is the idea that there's a hidden civilization here on Earth somewhere. Sometimes people will suggest it's 
in the center of the earth or underground or up in a remote mountain range or something. But somewhere there's a, a hidden, that's crypto, a hidden advanced civilization here on earth that we don't know about. Wakanda forever. <laughs> yeah, like like Wakanda or something. Yes. I don't think it's likely that there's a hidden, highly advanced civilization on Earth that we don't know about. So I think this is the least likely of the exotic possibilities. Extraterrestrials would be a possibility, though. So would interdimensionals. That is technology from people from another dimension or something like that. And since the Shupa-like craft were reported at Skinwalker Ranch, if you go back and listen to our Skinwalker Ranch episode, you might give interdimensionals a slight edge over extraterrestrials, since there did seem to be some kind of portal-like phenomena connected with Skinwalker Ranch, at least according to the reports. All right, Jimmy, so bottom line, what is your bottom line on this mystery? Well, I don't know what to think. Of the conventional explanations, the hoax and classified technology theories seem more plausible. Um, Of the exotic explanations, aliens and interdimensionals would seem to fit the evidence better. But you'll have to make up your own mind. All right. So, folks, that's the Kolaris incident. Jimmy, what are the further resources that you have to offer to the listeners to to look, look at it more? We'll have a um, a link to Jacques Vallée's book, Confrontations, A Scientist's Search for Alien Contact, where he talks about this case and others. Also, Bob Pratt's book, UFO Danger Zone, Terror and Death in Brazil, which is about the overall wave of UFO sightings that went on for some years in Brazil. So a lot more to hear about there. Also, there was a TV show called Close Encounters that had a segment on the Colares incident with, you know, reenacting of what happened. And uh, we'll have a link to that. It's on Amazon Prime. You can buy the episode. It's season two, episode four. The segment is the first one in the show. It's called Fire in the Sky. Also, we'll have a link to Patrick Gross's Colares UFO site and uh, Wikipedia's pages on UFO or U.S.-Brazil relations in, back in 1977, uh, their page on Jacques Vallée, on malaria, on malaria in Brazil from the National Institutes of Health, Wikipedia on ball lightning and directed energy weapons, and then also we'll have a link to our former episode on Skinwalker Ranch. Yes, and one of our most popular episodes, by the way. So very, yeah. very interesting, the possible connections. All right, so let's move on to our mysterious feedback this week. And this time we'll be talking about feedback from our recent episode on Amelia Earhart. Uh, Michael uh, writes on Facebook, This is one of those episodes I would have skipped if it were any other podcast. I was not interested in this at all, but listened anyway because you guys do such a great job. I am very glad I did. There is so much more to this story than I would have guessed. You could release an episode on the mystery of paint drying and I would tune in. You make everything so interesting and engaging. (laughs) <laughs> Thank you so much, Michael. Uh, appreciate that. It's a, quite a compliment. I don't think I'll add the mystery of paint drying to the big episode topic list just yet, but I'll keep it in mind. Uh, then Aaron commented on YouTube, said, uh, well, the aliens theory is obviously absurd, but could she have been eaten by Thulu? Well, um, yeah. So Amelia Earhart did disappear over the Pacific, and that's the location of the sunken city of Relia, where dead Cthulhu lies sleeping. So maybe he woke up and, and ate her up. Sure. Why not? <laughs> sure. Well, those uh, coconut crabs, 
they look a little creepy, so maybe they're related. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they could be servants of Cthulhu. Uh, exactly. Yeah. So and Lee sent an email, said, uh, thanks for this podcast. Really have liked all episodes. I also play lots of them for my kids. I especially like to play them on camping trips at night around the fire. <laughs> I'm just imagining cool. that. About the parasite show. Oh, wow, that's crazy. Oh, that, that would be great to hear around the fire out in the woods, wouldn't it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's crazy amazing. It does seem like the smaller things get, the more amazing and complex they become. All I can say is, Father God, you are amazing. I don't know how one can learn about these things and think, yeah, this just happened. About Amelia Earhart, why didn't the Navy search Gardner Island if they saw signs of life, especially especially since it would have been the closest place to go? Well, thank you again to, and to the listeners. If you haven't done so already, check out the rest of the StarQuest podcasts. You won't be disappointed. In terms of uh, the search of Gardner Island, they did search it. it. It was about a week after the disappearance, and they, you know, were not expecting her to disappear. So it's not like they had a massive fleet of ships in the area to look for her. And they searched the local area first and then kind of broadened out. They searched by plane initially, which is why they saw the uh, indications of recent inhabitation on Gardner Island. But it took them a while to get there because, you know ships are slower than planes and they were using their ships to search the local waters first but they did search it it just took them about a week and thank you for the recommendation that people check out our other podcasts yeah i mean if you like this you might like our secrets of doctor who secrets of star trek and our uh, revival of secrets of star wars which has been going great especially if you like the mandalorian and because the new uh rise of skywalker is coming out very soon after this show uh, releases to you so check them out so, Jimmy, uh, what mysterious headlines do we have this week? Well, I've, uh, since we were talking about possible extraterrestrials this time, I thought we'd have a space theme. And so we'll have an article from Forbes.com on the possibility that there are alien probes on Earth's co-orbital objects. Now, mm -hmm. when you think of uh, the moon, you know, the moon is our most famous co-orbital object and actually goes directly around us or technically we and it orbit a Berry Center that's within the earth but um there are other what are called co-orbital objects like asteroids that have orbits around the sun very similar to earth's and those would be a good place to put alien probes if you wanted to study earth so they would therefore be a good place to look for possible alien probes and we'll have an article about that also, we will have a an, an link to an article about possible strange new worlds that we have discovered. Now, Star Trek's mission is <laughs> to seek out strange new worlds, but they shouldn't visit this kind of strange world. This kind <laughs> of strange world is a world made out of strange matter. Ooh. So strange matter is a theoretical state of matter where all of the quarks, so this could be like a neutron star, which would generate a strange star. Uh, neutrons are, neutron stars are made out of neutrons because all the other stuff's been crushed out and, or for the most part, and the neutrons are made out of quarks. And at a certain density, the quarks would all turn into strange quarks. And the problem with strange, and that would make the star strange matter or a strange star. Well, the problem with strange matter, if it exists, is one of its predicted properties if, is if anything touches it, that also turns into strange matter. Ooh. 
And so if there are strange new worlds out there in the sense of they're made out of strange matter, you don't want to land on them. (laughs) And there are some scientists who have proposed that we may have discovered some star systems, including planets, made out of this bizarre and terrifying strange matter. Wow. That, now, that would be an interesting episode of Star Trek. <laughs> yeah. All right. Those are some great Conduct headlines. no landings here. <laughs> yes. Uh, so in a second, Jimmy, I'm going to ask you what our next episode is going to be about. But first, I do want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including today, Dr. Hiram G., who chose this topic and because of his generosity. But I also want to thank him for his generous donation and those of all of our patrons at sqpn.com slash give who make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. So, Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Uh, Before I mention that, I just want to say a personal thanks also to Dr. Hiram G. Uh, This was a really fun topic to research. I enjoyed it very much. And thank you so much for your generosity. In terms of what we're going to be looking at next, well, we're coming up on Christmas. And so this time we're going to be looking at the mystery of the Magi. Excellent. Excellent. So that's it from us. So what do you think of this mystery of the Brazilian Chupa UFOs? You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com slash mysterious or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page, or sending us an email to to mysterious at sqpn.com, or a tweet to at mys underscore world with the hashtag of Mysterious Feedback. Uh, Please remember to like this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World on Facebook, retweet it on Twitter, and otherwise engage in it on social media so that it tricks the algorithms into showing it to everyone who actually wants to see it. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to the mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Tom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest.